hearing that next Sunday is uh, spring forward just brings out the curmudgeon in me. <laughs> not just because you lose an hour's sleep. I mean, that's not that big a deal for me. I got up so early anyway, but why do we do this? It's the stupidest thing ever. Anyway, okay. So those of you who really enjoy daylight savings time or the switch twice a year, I'm sorry if I offended you. <laughs> These past few weeks, I've kind of felt like Jonah. I wasn't swallowed by a big fish. If you think, well, why is Bill so slimy up here this morning? No. But I felt like Jonah because of the sense of direction I had for this morning's sermon and my desire to run away from it. Now, Jim Garrett and I often discuss God's leading when we're deciding what to preach. And Jim often agonizes in prayer for days, actually, before getting a clear sense of direction. And he sometimes isn't even sure what he's going to preach until a few days before. Now, that would drive me nuts, and that would make me very nervous. But Jim's been doing this a lot longer than I have, even though I've been doing it for 28 years. And, of course, Jim's a lot more spiritual than I am. I seldom agonize in prayer deciding what to preach. Now, I do pray, definitely, and I do seek God's leading, but I usually pray for God's leading to help me determine which of the two or three things that have been rumbling around in my brain for a few weeks are what I should preach on this particular Sunday. Which one should I focus on? And usually I get a very clear sense, and I believe this is from the Lord, and be, I begin the proper process of preparing for that message wherever the Lord has led me. And now this time when praying and deciding about this morning's message was no different. I got a very clear sense from the Lord about this morning's theme. And though I do know better than to argue with God, I still felt some resistance. I did not want to do this message. First of all, this morning's theme was something I preached on just two years ago. And when I decided that this is what the Lord would have me bring, and I looked in my notes, I realized that I had preached on this two years ago. Wait, so soon? This message with the same overall theme, however, will be much different than the message I preached a few years ago. And secondly, while Jim Grinnell often gets to speak about something inspiring and Gordon gets to exhort us from his word, Jim Garrett gets to be all scholarly and tell us the insightful nuances of the Greek, and James gets to talk about math in the Bible and do somersaults on stage. <laughs> I, unfortunately, get to preach on uncomfortable topics like money. No one else wants to do that, so, okay, I guess I'll do it. Not this morning. Or I get God's clear direction like this morning's message, and this is what C.S. Lewis called the crude monosyllable which is a very unpleasant topic. So unpleasant, so disturbing, that there's really not much good or at least appropriate humor I could begin with. And that's why, my brothers and sisters, I felt like Jonah, with a clear sense of direction from the Lord about what I need to say, but a real desire to not have to say it, to run in the other direction. That's because this morning's topic is hell, a crude one-syllable word. There are a lot of reasons why we should hear about hell from this pulpit. Not the least of which is that Jesus spoke about hell and judgment so often. But because it's a troubling topic, we tend to avoid thinking about it or discussing it or preaching about it. We hardly also 
ever include this in any aspect of sharing our faith. Yes, we should major on the love of God, but why is the gospel good news? Why do we do missions? We just spent five meetings a few weeks ago learning about, thinking about, pondering the value of, the strategies of missions and evangelism. We spend, as a church, tens of thousands of dollars each year for the purpose of evangelism around the world. Is this just a nice thing to do? Is this because, gee, this is what churches do? If there is no hell or no one is in danger of spending eternity there, why are we even here, brothers and sisters? Yes, there are clear additional benefits to being part of the body of Christ. We all enjoy these things, but without our mission statement, training and releasing laborers into the harvest, which is a harvest of souls to be saved from eternal death, but apart from our reason for existence, we could almost as easily gain some of these benefits of fellowship and relationship with some sort of social club that had nothing to do with the gospel. The gospel is God's good news that we can have eternal life. But there's an implication of that good news that we cannot avoid, must not ignore or forget. There's bad news before there's good news. The bad news is that hell is a real place and that many people will spend all of eternity there if they do not trust in Christ alone for their salvation. God's harvest that we talk about in our mission statement rescues people from this horrible destiny and existence. It is the opposite of eternal life. It's eternal death, as it says in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We all deserve this death. Everyone in this room, because we're all sinners. Our Bible Bowl kids learn this next verse that I'm going to read in a moment first. It's the A verse. All have sinned. Now I'm going to go all Jim Garrett on you here. In the Greek, all means, wait for it, all. It means all. Everybody. No exceptions. You and me. Everybody in this room. All have sinned. It tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Because all have sinned and because the wages of sin is death, we all deserve hell, apart from the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is especially good news because of the bad news that comes first. The wages of sin is death, but the gospel of the good news is that God has made a way for us to have eternal life rather than eternal death when we trust in Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross. Now later this month, James mentioned it a few minutes ago, during Holy Week, we will ponder at length that sacrifice in our special Maundy Thursday and Good Friday services. Part of those meditations that week must include the reality that when Jesus suffered on the cross, when Jesus spoke the immortal words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
He was experiencing in that moment the torment of eternal separation from God. He was experiencing the terror, the suffering, the agony of hell. But we know that in his suffering, in his death, and in his subsequent resurrection from the dead, Jesus conquered sin and death. Amen? In trusting in him, in identifying with him, even as we'll witness here shortly when we have two baptized here this morning, but trusting in Christ, we escape death. That doesn't mean that these mortal bodies won't die. We know that, right? We've seen it happen often in the last couple of years right in our midst. Unless Jesus returns before that moment, we'll all die. But the death we escape is that eternal death, which is the wages of sin. That eternal death is a forever place of separation from God, and it's called hell. Anyone here ever heard of Ray Comfort? Okay, a lot of you have heard of Ray Comfort. He's a fairly confrontational street evangelist who believes that hell must be a part of evangelism because it creates urgency. You can find multiple videos of his evangelistic efforts online. They're fascinating to watch. He believes that we must include the law, the Ten Commandments, in our efforts to evangelize those who are lost. And he also believes that hell must be included in our presentation of the good news. Again, the bad news before the good news. The bad news that makes the good news good news. He said that in the early 1900s, he says that evangelism stopped using the law for conviction of sin and found another reason for sinners to respond to Christ, to the gospel. The reason some give to this day as a reason to come to Christ is that Jesus will give you peace and joy and love and fulfillment and lasting happiness. Now, of course, there is some truth in that, right? The happiest people I know are Christians. The people I know who have the most peace in their hearts are Christians. The most joyful people I know are all Christians. But while these things may come with conversion as a byproduct... It's also true that as Christ changes us more and more into his image, there's also suffering. It's inevitable for the believer and unbeliever alike. But the comfort of the Holy Spirit accompanies this suffering, so there is peace and joy too. Now, Ray Comfort has an illustration showing how vacant the type of evangelism that says everything's going to be great when you come to Christ really is. And no doubt at least some here have heard this. Two men are seated in a plane. The first is given a parachute. Have you heard this illustration, some of you? Okay. And told to put it on as it would improve his flight. Now, he's a little skeptical at first because he can't see how wearing a parachute in a plane could possibly improve the flight and make him more comfortable, right? After a while, he decides to experiment and see if those claims are true. As he puts it on, he notices the weight of it on his shoulders, and he finds that he has difficulty in sitting upright. However, he consoles himself with the fact that he was told the parachute would improve the flight. So he decides to give the thing a little bit of time, and as he waits, he notices that some of the other passengers are kind of snickering. They're laughing at him because he's wearing a parachute on this plane. He begins to feel somewhat humiliated. And as they begin to point and laugh at him, and he can't stand it any longer, he sinks in his seat, 
he unstraps the parachute and he throws it to the floor. Disillusionment and bitterness fill his heart because as far as he was concerned, he was told an outright lie. Now the second man is given a parachute, but listen to what he's told. He's told to put it on because at any moment he's going to be jumping out of the plane. He gratefully puts the parachute on. He doesn't notice the weight so much on his shoulders, nor can he sit upright, and he doesn't care. His mind is consumed with the thought of what would happen to him if he jumped without that parachute. So think for a moment here with me about the motive and result of each passenger's experience here. The first man's motive for putting the parachute on was only to improve his flight. The result of his experience was that he was humiliated by the other passengers, he was disillusioned, and he was probably angry at the person who gave him the parachute. As far as he's concerned, it's going to be a long time before anyone gets one of those parachutes on his back again. Now the second man, he put the parachute on for the express purpose of surviving the fall from the plane because he knows what would happen to him without it. He has a deep-rooted joy and peace in his heart, knowing that he's saved from sure death. This knowledge gives him the ability to withstand the mockery of the other passengers. Okay, they can mock me all day, but I've got a parachute when this plane goes down. His attitude towards those who gave him the parachute is one of gratitude. Now listen to what the modern gospel says. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll give you love, joy, peace, fulfillment, and lasting happiness. In other words, Jesus will improve your flight. So the sinner responds, kind of in an experimental fashion. Puts on the Savior to see if the claims are true. And what does he get? He gets temptation. He gets suffering, tribulation, and persecution, just like the rest of us. The other passengers mock him. So what does he do? He takes off the parachute. He takes off the Lord Jesus Christ. He's disillusioned. Maybe he's bitter too. He was promised peace and joy and fulfillment, right? And lasting happiness and all he got was trouble and humiliation. His bitterness is directed toward those who gave him this so-called good news. And he'll mock that too. His spiritual state becomes worse than the first. He's another inoculated and bitter backslider. This is why we must include the warning about the reality of hell when we share the gospel. Now, I'm not saying we need to lead with that, okay? I agree that, you know, most often, most effective evangelism comes with relationships, sometimes relationships built over time. How many of you came to Christ because somebody you knew told you about Jesus? I'd say, you know, that's probably at least half of us, right? Okay? And yes, it's helpful to share with unbelievers that there's joy and peace that are such a wonderful part of a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. But in that, let's not neglect to tell them the truth. Instead of telling them that Jesus improves the flight, let's make sure we warn them that they're going to have to jump out of the plane. Let's tell them about judgment. Let's tell them about the consequences of breaking God's law. Let's tell them that God is love. But that's not the sum total of who God is. He's also the judge. He's also holy. 
He's also wrathful against sin and sinners. We just sang, in Christ alone, the wrath of God was satisfied. But there is wrath. God is too pure to look upon sin. Let's tell them there's a place called hell, and without that parachute, that's where they'll land when they fall from the plane. God's holiness encompasses all these things we know about him from his word. And his love has made forgiveness from sin possible for you and for me. Peace and joy are legitimate fruits of salvation. But let's not use these fruits as the primary motivation to come to Christ. If we continue to do so, sinners will respond with an impure motive. They won't be truly repentant, right? Now, can you remember why the second passenger had joy and peace in his heart? He knew that the parachute was going to save him from sure death. And as believers in Christ, we have, as Paul says, joy and peace in believing, Romans 15, 13. Why? Why do we have this joy and peace in believing? Because we know that the righteousness of Christ is going to deliver us from the wrath that's coming. That's the best reason that the baptisms we'll witness here shortly are a joyous occasion, buried with Jesus, identifying with him in his death, the same death that put sin to death, that redeemed us from the curse of death, and then we're raised to newness of life, a resurrection that begins the moment we trust in Christ and continues after our physical death into eternity forever and ever. Good news, my brothers and sisters, the best news ever. Now, I was already praying about this message when I read a quote, which I'll share with you in a moment. But reading this quote confirmed my sense of direction for this morning. Maybe many most of you know that I was raised Catholic. There I am visiting my old high school about 20 years ago. St. Mary's Catholic grade school, Notre Dame High School. I was an altar boy. I even wanted to be a priest when I was younger before I started to notice that girls weren't quite as icky as I thought they were when I was a young boy. Now, much of the foundation for the faith I have today was laid in my Catholic upbringing, and I appreciate much of it. And this included an understanding of the reality of hell. It was when I was 16 and I was attending a friend's funeral and began to think about eternal things, including the question of where would I spend eternity, that the Lord took me down the path that led me to hearing the gospel in a way I'd never encountered in the Catholic Church, and I trusted in Jesus for the first time. Now, as a Catholic, you know you have great respect for the Pope. He's the head of the church, so you listen to what he says. This is the quote I heard. Now, Pope Francis was speaking on a primetime TV talk show on January 14th, and he was asked by the interviewer how he imagines hell. He said this, What I am going to say is not a dogma of my faith, but my own personal view. I like to think of hell as empty. I hope it is. Now, this quote does not reflect traditional 2,000-year-old Catholic doctrine. And despite his caveat that what he said is not meant to be a dogma of faith, many Catholics will take this to heart, and it just illustrates the theological drift that has taken place not just in the Catholic Church, but in many corners of Christianity, not just with the Pope. 
And I guarantee you that quote will confuse many Catholics and it will anger many others. It also reflects this cultural moment we're in. No one wants to imagine that there is a real place called hell where there's suffering, much less that anybody actually goes there when they die. I have to turn up the radio when I hear John Lennon come on with Imagine. You know that song? Imagine there's no heaven, there's no hell below us, above us only sky. It's blasphemy. So think about this. Despite the fact that most cultures, even today, have an innate wish to see evil and wickedness punished, nobody wants to imagine that there's a real place called hell where there's suffering, much less that anybody goes there when they die. One writer told the story of seeing the Lion King production on Broadway. So you may not have seen the Broadway or a stage production, but most of us have seen the movie at least, one version or another of the movie. And he wrote after seeing this that the crowd went wild at the destruction of Scar, okay? If you haven't seen any version of the Lion King, Scar's the evil villain in the story, okay? This writer wrote, among all the educated and psychologically informed members of the audience, I didn't observe any who expressed concern about the villain's feelings. No one objected or stood in protest as a self-proclaimed advocate for Scar. None demanded our empathy for the misunderstood scapegoat. Deep down, we all want the wicked to receive their due. We all have our cries for justice. Even Broadway audiences cheer the destruction of the manifest monster. Without controversy, we consign Hitler to damnation. We know great evil demands cosmic justice, yet we have a harder time imagining ourselves or our beloved friends and family as the wicked, as those justly deserving what Jesus called hell. I think we have to recognize that hell is supposed to make us uncomfortable. If it doesn't make you uncomfortable, there's something wrong with you. So theologian Wayne Grudem wrote this, the doctrine of eternal conscious punishment, so foreign to the thought patterns of our culture, also offends on a deeper level. Our instinctive and God-given sense of love and desire for redemption for every human being created in God's image. So he acknowledges this doctrine is emotionally one of the most difficult doctrines for Christians to affirm today. It's true of all of us. It's true of all of us. So though hell is probably the most uncomfortable doctrine that's clearly taught in the Bible, the fact remains that it is clearly taught in the Bible. So here's our question are we going to accept the things in Scripture that make us uncomfortable? Or are we going to be like our culture and even some in the church like the current Pope and allow our feelings, our discomfort, or our incomplete understanding of a doctrine make us wish it away? Imagine there's no hell. Or do we want to alter it in some way? Or do we want to deny it outright? Brothers and sisters, this is where the rubber meets the road. Is the Word of God really, genuinely our authority for faith and practice? Rightly interpreted, as Paul urged Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, 
rightly handling the word of truth. So the implication is clear. You can wrongly handle or interpret the word of truth. We must look to the word for how we view and understand these uncomfortable truths and not let our feelings of discomfort define truth for us. And the word shows us that in the end, even an uncomfortable truth like the reality of eternal punishment will glorify God. A couple passages from Revelation here. First, chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Now listen carefully to this in the context of what we're looking at this morning. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, the God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So think about this for a second. The wrath of God is seen differently here than we tend to see punishment. John says those present in this scene called this wrath with seven angels and plagues great and amazing. Think about that. How do these saints in this passage respond to God's wrath? Does it say they wept and wished it weren't true? Does it say they hoped or imagined it didn't really happen? No! That's not what the Word tells us. They sang. They sang at the revelation of God's judgment without any objections, without any angst, without any sense that they're troubled by God's wrath like we can be troubled with the reality of eternal punishment in hell. They sing. Amazing. They praise God for His righteous deeds. They praise Him for His justice. They call His demonstration of His wrath great and amazing. And then we read a few chapters later in Revelation 19. The chapter before that, chapter 18, talked about the fall of Babylon and the wicked being destroyed in a single hour. And we read this passage. After this, okay, so after this judgment was rendered, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! So in this scene, again, there's no regret. There's no thought or question of how can a loving God punish eternally. Instead, there's praise. We see hallelujah three times in four verses. Worshiping God. His people declare and affirm his judgments are true and just. 
They celebrate God's vengeance of the blood of his servants. And we see that this judgment isn't just for a moment in time because verse 3 here tells us the smoke goes up forever and ever. The smoke of this judgment. The judgment continues forever and ever. Theologian John Frame comments, when we are gathered around the throne singing God's praises in the eternal state, we will not be raising objections to God's justice, but we will be praising it without reservation. Now, this is tough, isn't it? How can this be? Today, we are deeply troubled by the thought of hell, especially when we think about the people we love who are headed there. And you know, we should be troubled. If we're not troubled again, our hearts are hard and uncaring. How can we anticipate a day when we'll not only not be troubled, but we'll celebrate, we'll glorify God for his justice? I think there's at least a few reasons for this. I think we underestimate how horrible and offensive sin, our sin, my sin, really is. And we also underestimate the holiness of God. We tend to think of sin as mistakes. How many times have you heard somebody say, well, you know, I made a mistake? Even when we see sin as deeper than mistakes, I think in our finite understanding of an infinite God, we don't see how our quote-unquote little small sins are a stink in his nostrils, a slap in his holy face, a blatant violation and lack of appreciation for the maker of the universe who has given us life and breath and redemption, everything we get to enjoy as gifts of his grace. This goes for the believer as well as the unbeliever. If God had to pay such a great price, think about it. If God had to pay such a great price for us to be redeemed from sin, that tells us both the extent of his love and the extent of our evil, our sin. People's main objection to hell is often the belief that we are a lot better than we really are. We do not even begin to understand the extent of our evil in the sight of an all-holy God. And perhaps, worst of all, we deny the awesome magnificence of God's grace in Christ's blood shed for us on the cross. Suppose that God is far, far more holy than we realize. Suppose that we are far, far more sinful than we realize. So we might admit that hell is a necessity and a just punishment for evildoers. However, we rarely see ourselves as worthy of hell. After all, I'm not Hitler. I'm not Stalin. I'm not a serial killer like Ted Bundy or Jeffrey Dahmer. I'm not Saddam. I'm not Mao. I'm not part of Hamas. Right? Yet God says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 12, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. The same Bible that tells us that God is love and exalts his mercy also speaks of him as a judge who will do right, Genesis 18:25. And then in Psalm 89, verse 14, we see it all put together in one verse. 
Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. This is all part of who our great and mighty God is. And he is not an internal conflict or troubled like we are by the doctrine of hell. These attributes work hand in hand. So while we don't have in this world, in this time right now, relief from this emotional dilemma that, again, we should all feel. We should be troubled by this. What we do have is a prophetic promise. God will one day bring history to an end in such a way as to give us relief and understanding, just like we read from the passages from the book of Revelation. We'll be part of that great cloud of witnesses that worships the Lord on that great day. We will have peace when his justice is satisfied forever. So for now, the thought of hell is supposed to make us uncomfortable. But one day soon, all the masks will be off. Our minds will never be infinite, but God will reveal to us so much more. And our minds will also no longer be clouded by sin, and we will no longer see through a glass darkly, as Scripture tells us. We will see all evil for what it is for why God had to pay such a terrible price for our salvation. And we will see the wicked for who they are as enemies of God and foes of his people. And with all the saints in heaven, we will rejoice in praise and unspeakable joy. And even our earthly loved ones in hell will not ruin the glory of heaven. I don't know about you, but I find that hard to grasp. I find that very hard to imagine because I am troubled by my loved ones who are not in Christ and at this moment are headed for hell. But I really believe that we will rejoice in praise in that day because the Bible also tells us in Revelation 21 verse 4 that every tear will be wiped away. There will be no mourning or crying or pain for those of us whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, for those who have trusted in the sacrifice of Jesus for our salvation. So how could it be true, how could we not cry or mourn if we were to still see, as we see today, hell as a doctrine that troubles us greatly, especially the thought that people we know and love may spend eternity there. But until then, until then, the belief in an eternal place of punishment should motivate us, right? If there are people going there, it should motivate us to spread the word, to share the light of Christ, to tell people that there is mercy, there is forgiveness in Christ because Jesus purchased our redemption from hell. Why are we here, brothers and sisters? Why are we here? Is there anything more urgent than that? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the urgency that your word truly brings when we hear these words about hell, that it's a real place, and it's a real place that people we know and people we love are destined for unless they come to Christ, unless they trust in Christ for their salvation. So, Father, let this word this morning motivate us. Let it motivate us to share our faith on a regular basis. Let it motivate us, Heavenly Father, to shine the love of Christ in every circumstance. Father, we thank you for your word.
We thank you for the clarity of your word. And we thank you that you love us and saved us by the blood of Jesus. Amen.